0: What I would like to look at this evening in the talk is the notion of the self. Now, it seems that the self, no matter how we look at it, is a very central figure in our lives it's the axis around which we revol- revolves our stories and our dramas our histories and our searches the self appears to be the link of continuity that weaves together the past and the present and the future the self seems to be the very central figure in our joys and our sorrows our successes and failures in our hopes and disappointments it is the most enduring companion in our lives so I think it seems that there is no experience that is complete without the self either to make it happen or to have it happen too. We feel good at times about the self. At times we feel bad about the self. The one thing we rarely feel is indifferent about the self. Oh. And most often our sense of the self is that it's kind of like a monster that hides under our bed it's like the dragon in our closets that we had as children it seems to be kind of waiting to ambush us to take us by surprise one thing we can assure ourselves about the self is how enduring our interest in it is we always have a lot to say about the self Yeah, I think it's sometimes useful to reflect a little bit upon the history of the self. Because I think a little bit by reflecting upon the history of the self, we also have a sense of how this self in the present moment has come to be or not come to be. And perhaps also some sense of what might happen to this self in the future. Then you have a question how it has evolved and were we born with a self did somebody give it to us have we carefully built it up over the years how did the self ever get to be the way it is at this moment in our lives and what role does it play right now what role does the self actually play in your life right now is it a help is it a hindrance is it a friend is it an enemy does it have any reality at all or is it also possible that we are rather engaged in a somewhat endless dance with a shadow partner. Now much of the spiritual journey we hear is actually to discover who we are. We hear this, to discover who we are. Sometimes it is put in this kind of concept. In fact, there are entire Spiritual practices that are devoted to this one single question who am i in our entire spiritual practices that encourage you simply to stay with that question to ask it over and over again not in order to produce answers and not in order really to just disc- to center the meditation around the self But the reason that that question is used is it's used as a kind of vehicle to help us to discover what is true and genuine within our own being and what is false, conditioned and constructed. Now, this search that goes on in our spiritual lives, our our kind of inner journeys to discover who we are Is actually a mirror, I feel, of a search that goes on elsewhere in our lives and throughout our lives. In a way I think we could look at our lives and perhaps say that they're a kind of a map of the way in which we search for a definition. Our lives are a kind of record, a chronicle, of the ways in which we have searched to discover who we are, a sense of identity that we feel in harmony with, that we feel is authentic. I do also feel that we equate having some certainty about our identity with happiness and with security. You know, there is a lot of emphasis given in our culture to having a a clear sense of identity, you know, a clear sense of self, of direction. I think identity is often looked upon as a way of providing us with inner authority. It's going to save us from being lost in the world. You know, if we have a clear sense of who we are. I think sometimes identity seems to be a way of providing us with an inner authority. And we all know in our lives how important it is to have inner authority. That if we are deprived of inner authority, we end up basically in our lives being at the mercy of other people's selves. You know, if you have now inner authority in your life, you, it seems, you will always be at the mercy or subject to other people's expectations and standards and values and demands. So logically looking, it seems, I think, that it is necessary to have a self in order to survive in a world of selves. And this seems to be the logical conclusion. You know, if you do not have a self, in a world of selves you are going to get kind of consumed or absorbed or overwhelmed by other people's self now we can trace the search for self back really to our most early memories now there doesn't really seem to be any child in the world who is born as a blank slate From the perspective, you know, if you ask any parent in the world, they will tell you that their children seem to be born with a budding sense of self. Even, you know, the most tiny infant seems to have preferences that it clearly and loudly expresses and dictates screaming about likes and dislikes. Even the tiniest infant seems to have certain patterns and tendencies. And parents are often kind of, you know, bewildered by this because they often feel that they have little choice about the mini-selves that are introduced into their lives. You know, and, you know, when these kind of miniature selves being very dramatic you know parents are often bewildered you know and they look at each other and say where did it come from <laughs> you know where did it come from that's not me I don't do that you know it must be in your genes you know or your history where did it come from and this bewilderment of course goes on to the life of parents you know where the pacifist parents wave their children off the army and you know the very ambitious parents are bewildered when their sons you know join a japanese tea ceremony training course. (laughs) and parents often you know really when their junior selves in their lives of course are filled with achievement parents are often very happy to take credit for that you know you know, chip off the old block and that sort of thing but those same parents of course are equally willing to abdicate totally all responsibility when the junior selves in their lives depart from their standards of acceptability and desirability now this whole area of choicelessness i feel is also shared by children children actually mostly feel that they don't have any choice about the way in which their self grows you know, no child is born clearly although a child may be born with certain patterns and inclinations no child is born with an unshakable sense of self we all know that from our own experience we also were children once but much more for a child you know their, their childhood identity how they feel about themselves is very clearly shaped and molded by the authorities that they meet in their lives for a child their sense of who they are is shaped and molded by parents by friends by teachers by social standards all of these play a part in forming the sense of self that grows within a child no matter how benevolent how ethical the authorities in our lives are as a, when we are children those authorities inevitably carry certain expectations and values about right and wrong about acceptable and unacceptable about what is worthy and what is unworthy. We all meet these dualities very early on in our experience. And we also meet the inevitable fact that these dualities and these standards of the authorities in our lives carry certain consequences and shadows. We learn very early in our lives about what the path is To praise to acceptance to love to positive feedback and we learn also very early in our lives what the path is to blame and judgment and rejection this exposure that we need early in our lives (coughs) is accompanied by our own craving for belonging and most of us learn in our lives the kind of smart path the path to follow that it will reap the rewards that we wish for because of that I think conformity very easily becomes one of childhood's guidelines conformity also becomes the habit of a lifetime becoming what other people would like us to be or seeing ourselves through the eyes mostly of others or internalizing the standards and expectations and dualities of others now there is actually no blame in this process it would be impossible to put down to attribute blame even the most loving and caring of parents bequeathed to their children a legacy a heritage an inheritance of their own values and standards i am you know absolutely convinced well i see it already that as my children grow up you know and when they are grown up i'm sure they will never ever want to hear the words pay attention again you know or, you know, let's be a little mindful here. You know, they they never, ever, you know, I'm sure in time they will tell me about what a negative influence this was in their lives. (laughs) (laughs) Now, on some level, we inherit, we inherit a kind of self, a sense of self. On another level, we long for a sense of self. Now this changes, of course, as we grow in our lives. As we grow more conscious, more mature, more independent, our search for self, our actual search for self, also becomes more conscious, more intentional on our part. As we kind of grow somewhat in our lives, we feel less vulnerable, perhaps to the expectations and the feedback that we receive from others. And our lives are no longer so governed or so overwhelmed by the search for approval and by the avoidance of disapproval. As we grow in our lives, we have a certain wisdom that tells us what benefits us and what limits us. And so no longer are our choices or our directions or our aspirations so linked to or dependent upon what the rewards will be. At that point in our lives, and you know, it does come at different ages for all of us, we begin to search for what we might then call a more real self a self that maybe we haven't just adopted from somebody else or inherited from our families, we want to at times start searching for a true self or a more real self, one that we feel more in harmony with and one that we feel embodies or manifests what we value and honor and aspire to. And I'm sure we have all been through this in our lives we start looking for about, you know, what's really me, what's genuine. Now, when we start doing that, start looking for a more real self, the field of exploration to find a real self is actually incredibly vast. You know, you're probably aware of this, you know, being adolescence or or twenties, you know, there are so many selves it's possible to be you know you know you could be famous or you could be a hermit you know or you could be you know a kind of executive or you could be a humble mystic you know or you could be a fashion model or you could renounce the body altogether i mean there are so many selves you know if you look in any magazine you know any kind of advertising It's a kind of exhibition isn't it of the different selves it's possible to be in life and it's a little bit like taking potluck you know what looks good you know what are we attracted to and i think also we are aware of the incredible power of the expectations in our culture to be someone you know i think you know from the time we are so tiny to hear that how important it is to be someone. you know make your mark in the world you know be remembered you know be be worthy be admired you know stand out take pride in yourself you know achieve something be someone. This is a kind of compelling message of our culture, which, in a little bit, also in a way, expresses perhaps a certain craving that we have in, within ourselves. I mean, we're all aware that being someone, you know, attracts an enormous amount of prestige in our world. I mean, it does. You know, but sometimes we're told, you know, it, it's like fulfilling your potential. You know, if you fulfill your potential, you're going to be someone, and it's usually about being special. You know, being different than other people, standing out, be special, then you really will be someone. You'll be noticed. People will pay attention to you. You'll be visible. I think sometimes this, this kind of desire and pressure to be someone, you know, becomes kind of almost a sort of holy, holy goal, you know, pursuit of the holy grail, how to be someone in the world, how to have a label or a description or some kind of credential which will prove that will be evidence that you are special. it becomes a sort of sacred pursuit the pursuit of being someone that is admired and acclaimed and applauded and we know how much fear there is in our culture about being no one you know to be no one in our culture is like it's to be invisible it's to be ignored it's to be overlooked walked on trampled on you know lost, you know, all of this is associated with being no one, you know, no one, uh, <laughs> no one would ever like to put on their kind of, uh, you know, their CV, you know, any kind of a uh, reference, you know, saying, you know, well, what have I achieved in my life? I've understood what it means to be no one, you know, this is not, this is not going to make you popular, it's not, you know, it will be met with puzzlement, you know, it's, you know selflessness does not have a lot of you know acclaim in our culture you know it's just you know it's not going to get you anywhere no self will not get you anywhere you know the only way to get somewhere in our culture is by being a self you know no self is going to make being basically you're discarded you know you're some kind of loony if there's no one home So the search for to be someone does become, I think, for many of us at different times in our lives, perhaps not for many of us, but it does become in our culture something of a mission. And on one way, on one level, psychologically, we might say, well, it's very healthy. You know, to psychologically wean ourselves away from the expectations and the definitions and the the images of others to find something that is purely our own to find our own self in a way we might say it's a kind of healthy and necessary process if we're going to fulfill our potential if we're going to explore our possi- possibilities if we're going to understand what autonomy and inner authority is all about now on one level i might say it's Yes, it is important not to live for the applause of others. It's important not to live in a way in which the expectations of others govern our lives. But I think also we need to be incredibly cautious about how much admiration we give to this process of discovering a real self. Because I think it is important to appreciate the endlessness of the craving to be someone. How it will manifest in our outer lives, in our relationships, in our meditation. You know, how this craving to be someone for specialness, to be different, you know, is a kind of tyrant that drives us always you know towards the future towards gain towards credentials towards something that makes us special it also makes us travel many detours in our lives because the self as long as it is in this cycle and in this momentum always wants to be a star always the self wants to be a star it doesn't matter if it's a star in a great admired production or if it's a star in a tragedy But the self would like to be a star sometimes you can i think it is possible to look upon the kind of the pursuit and process of the self almost as a hunger I think the self is experienced as a hunger an appetite that can never be satisfied in a way the self is like a little child you know a hungry little child or sitting there with its mouth open you know waiting to be filled up in a way it can never be you know no matter how many experiences how many credentials you know how many uh, dramas or movies or soap operas it's Starting the self actually is never satisfied. It's a, it's a hunger that is never satisfied. Now I think it is. It, sometimes it is helpful to look at um, how this craving to be someone, or this desire to be someone, is actually pursued. It seems to me that. Primarily our sense of self depends upon two things and the two things that our sense of self depends upon are appearance and performance. These two two things of appearance and performance are the standards by which we evaluate the worth of the self and evaluate the worth of other people's self. I think also it's very important to appreciate the tyrannical, what a tyrant the addiction is to these two things of appearance and performance. Through appearance and performance, the self actually finds the path praise and credentials and affirmation look at how much emphasis we place upon appearance having the right what we call the acceptable or the right body mind and personality which we can present to the world having the right looking self or the right kind of self to present to the world now appearance is of course our first basis of judgment of ourselves or of others appearance is also being the way in which we learn to win certain rewards of praise, of love, of acceptance and look what we do in service to that tyrant of appearance how another way of looking at this kind of servitude to the standard of appearance, it's a kind of self-abuse. It is a kind of bondage upon which rests so much fear and restlessness. The fear of being unacceptable is pretty major in our lives. You know, it is why some people cannot begin the day without looking in a mirror or without standing on some scales, or without checking out that they are making the right impact, the right presentation in the world. Look what we do to others on the basis of appearance. I mean, we know how, how much this is true. I mean, you can spend, you know, a week or two weeks in silence with a group of other people, you know. And I bet, you know, that probably, you know, if I asked you all to sit down and write a little piece on everybody else in the retreat, you know, you, th- you know, most everybody could, you know, so and like this, you know, you know, they look like this and they do this, you know, they must be this kind of person because they look like that, you know, and, you know, this sort of walking style, they must be terribly mindful in their lives, they look so conscientious, you know, we could write a little part of history of everybody on the retreat without ever ever exchanging a word with them you know and what do we have to feed upon here about appearance the way someone appears to us performance is the other way the other path of discovering an acceptable sense of self and it's equally easy to see the ways in which we can become obsessed with performance producing producing the right kind of work Performing in a particular way, having the right kind of meditation, performance, again, becomes a way of describing ourselves. We also see the way in which we become become so preoccupied with doing things right. Doing things right. Being good enough. You know, being perfect. You know, even in retreats, you know, people have mentioned to me, you know, that sometimes at the end of sittings the they hang around, you know and kind of hang in there for another ten minutes just so it looks good, you know I mean, terrible meditation, but it looks absolutely terrific, you know it can sit longer than everybody else please, I'm not saying that this is what anybody does but I'm just saying this has been mentioned to me you know, this, this preoccupation with performance and looking acceptable and looking right can become so subtle and so intricate you know that we get completely tied up in this pursuit of perfection in ways that are just ridiculous sometimes you know this preoccupation with doing things right with perfection means that the tasks that we have to complete are endless and the improvements we can make in ourselves are also endless I mean, this is really so important to appreciate. You know, the possibility of self-improvement are infinite. They are infinite. It may well be possible that we will never arrive at the right self. You know, I think it's really important to appreciate that possibility. That we may never, no matter how much we fix ourselves up, You know or tune ourselves up or exchange one part for another you know or have a different credential we may actually never arrive at a point where we have the right self somehow surprisingly somebody else always seems to have it somebody else's self always manages to look a little better than our own you know, how did they get to be so compassionate? You know, I wonder how come they, how they ever got to be so forgiving, or or so honest, They're such a nice person. I wonder how they manage that. Somebody else always seems to have the self that we would like to have, or the self that we get after a lot of work and a lot of changing and a lot of improvement somehow doesn't even look like the one we wanted anymore once we get it, you know it's disappointing no. you know, it's disappointing yeah. you know, that we've let go of a lot of things and still doesn't quite look the way we figured it might You know, it is a pursuit of alienation the pursuit of appearance the pursuit of the performance pursuit of self through appearance and performance is actually the pursuit of alienation Mm. now something changes when we come to meditation sometimes we're very relieved because perhaps for the first time in our lives some value is all is given to that which we always feared you know some value is actually given to being no one that thing we are most terrified of in our lives is somehow suddenly all right you know it's okay it's actually even approved of sometimes (laughs) we're 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 really relieved to hear about no self you know sometimes it's such a relief to hear and to discover you know you're not the mind you're not the body oh you know what a burden to lay down you know it's it seems like really terrific news that to hear that we can't be defined by appearance, we can't be defined by an image, we can't be defined by our judgments, we can't be defined by any description. Instead, in come into this path, and you're actually encouraged—really encouraged—to let go of this pursuit of specialness. You know, to let go of this pursuit of performance and appearance. To learn how to be. In a way, it's kind of changing totally the goalposts in our lives. You know, we enter into a totally different territory with a different set of values. In fact, we even hear the message that to pursue the self, that which we've spent so much time in our lives doing, that to pursue the self is actually a source of conflict and struggle and alienation now i think it's also true that at times we have quite mixed feelings about this message i mean in a way it feels like such a relief to stop all this messing around with the self you know and to lay down that that burden of struggle and that relentless path of self improvement and perfection you know you hear about suchness and it has such a sweet sound you know (laughs) such you know no more perfection you know it is just in a way such a relief and but on the other hand no self doesn't always seem like such a great idea it is true we have ambivalence about this i mean first of all who brought us here you know there's some self-interest in being here Um, which doesn't so easily quite just relinquish all territory um but we wonder well how will we define ourselves you know without the guidelines of appearance and performance i mean you know will we just become disinterested in appearance and performance i mean will we be sort of degenerate into kind of you know boring slobs if we don't have a self you know will we stop having showers you know and and you know, kind of spend the rest of our lives glued to a zafu, you know, staring at a wall if we don't have a self. I mean how will we know what to do? You know, if we don't have a self to say, you know this is good and that's bad and that's worth looking at and that's worth letting go of. And you know, I think in being no one even evokes a greater fear, you know know and I think does evoke that fear of kind of floundering and being invisible and being homeless I think also in coming into this path and this the, the spiritual life I think at times we do also hear you know I'm not saying it's true but we do also hear in a variety of spiritual teachings that actually it's kind of shameful to have a self you know that actually it's, it's not at all a good idea and the less you talk about it the better you know <laughs> it's really you know i mean this is not you know people don't make a big deal about the self in these circles and sometimes you know th- this goes kind of to extremes you know some people say you know they never use the word i anymore you know it's always one you know one feels something you know or, or one is going to do a walking meditation you know or one is going for an interview you know you wonder sort of which one but you know there can even be this this reluctance, you know this kind of allergy to the word I you know like there's something really distasteful about saying I you know and really spiritual people don't talk about I and I think, but part of it, I think sometimes that we pick off in that message about there being something kind of amiss with the self is this desire to get rid of the self. And I think this can become the new mission. Beware that this becoming the new mission. You know, I think sometimes we have a history of having been kind of suffered, of having suffered with the self. And we hear spiritually that it's not a good idea to have a self. And for some people, this means that the whole meditative life becomes a mission to get rid of the self, to find no self. To find no self. Now, it is a mission that can also have some rather lethal side effects when we focus upon getting rid of anything what we often sacrifice in our desire to get rid of anything is of course sensitivity and compassion and understanding and denial ties us up in knots denial or avoidance in any form creates further separation and further struggle and further alienation. Now sometimes the quest for no self is not undertaken in a spirit of denial. Sometimes the quest for no self is undertaken in a great spirit of wisdom wanting to understand what it means, what this this term actually means, no self. You because know, in Buddhist teachings used a lot. You know, it's really important thing to understand. You know, it's talked about over and over and over again in the sutras and in meditation. Part of this path is to understand what no-self means. So we still, though, need to be cautious. We still need to be cautious. Now in the practice of meditation, you can discover some very profound levels of transparency. Extraordinarily profound levels of transparency. Transparency of the self. You know, There can be in meditation such an extraordinary inner stillness that really holds this kind of parade of arising and passing you know, thoughts and sensations and sounds, they arise and they pass. And we see also the arising and passing of the notion of I with them. It's clear, in you know, it can be seen. It's held within the vastness of awareness. And often in that, well, what does happen in that is that the glue which previously held the picture of self together, Begins to come unstuck. It, be, it simply begins to come unstuck. You can. It becomes increasingly difficult to point at anything within that parade of arising and passing and say, "Oh, that's who I am." You can't. You know. I, I mean, the seer is different than the thinker, and and the fantasier, fantasizer is a little different than the planner. And you can't point at anything. And say in an enduring way, this is what I am. It is impossible. There is nothing that is lasting. There's nothing that is constant. There is nothing that is enduring of that, in that. Instead, more and more, there is the seeing of the idea of I, the sense of self, arising and passing in relationship to objects of thoughts and feelings and sounds, etc. There's the scene of the arising and passing of this idea of I am, I have, I know. But it doesn't have any, any solidity. It's, it's so transparent. It's just seen right too There's not a sense of what happens, of course, is the, the, the process or the hold of grasping. It's just loosened. It's just loosened. It doesn't have any grip anymore. All of the images, the ideas of history, of who I used to be and who I will be in the future begin to dissolve. They are gone. And sometimes we look in that process of arising and passing of a tra- of self to find. You know, we start looking for a self. We start asking, well, you know, I, who am I? But every time we try and find a self, it's like we're always looking behind us it's already gone that self it's already passed it's like a shadow it has already moved on what becomes clear is the transparency that there is, isn't actually any center there isn't actually any center that we can rely upon but what can still take place is the remarkable capacity of this notion of i for adaptability becomes very flexible in fact the self would really rather like to own no self Mm -hmm. because this would be the ultimate credential to be able to say i'm enlightened you know or now i know you know i have seen no self this grasping kind of goes underground. It becomes more subtle. And there can be a way even of taking no self very personally. (laughs) And I'd like to read you a story. One day a rabbi, in a frenzy of religious passion, rushed in before the altar, fell to his knees, and started beating his chest crying i'm nobody i'm nobody now the counter of the synagogue impressed by this example of spiritual humility joined the rabbi on his knees shouting i'm nobody i'm nobody now the caretaker was watching from the corner and he couldn't restrain himself either and he joined the other two on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point, the rabbi nudged the canter with his elbow, pointed at the caretaker, and said, Look who thinks he's nobody. <laughs> In a way, the grandest possession of the self is insight. But in a way, it can be another preoccupation, another subtle way of being preoccupied with the self. As long as we define ourselves by our ability or inability to see transparency, still there is grasping. As long as we define ourselves, our credentials, by our ability or inability to see transparency, there is still grasping and even the perception of transparency can be limited to a moment of arising and also passes and is confined within the field of experience and still the self can arise and say i have had that experience there is some greater understanding of emptiness that is denied as long as the self is defined by any credential no matter how worthy or how spiritual that credential is now part of the responsibility for that limitation for the limitation even of experience in the way i think we need to see the way in which we give solidity to the self our kind of negativity or aversion and sometimes i think we credit the self with far more power than it actually has you know sometimes we regard it as a kind of monstrous thing that has all these powers you know the self is given all this credit for being able to create separation it says that the self is the source of anger the source of conflict the source of greed the source of division it has a terrible reputation the self and i think it's mostly unwarranted it is mostly unwarranted now all of this naming and blaming we do of the self it means that we become more and more preoccupied with the either pursuing a real self or finding no self. All of it credits the self with a power and substantiality which it doesn't have. In a way, getting a real self and getting rid of the self are two different enactments of the same dance. They are really two different expressions of the very same dance. Both of them, in a way, I think miss the point. We become so burdened by responsibility, so burdened to find no, by the pursuit of no self, so burdened by the responsibility of getting rid of the self. Sometimes we're just chasing a different kind of performance and appearance. it is important to understand or to look many, many times at what we mean by the self. What do we mean by I? What is this kind of monster that we give so much attention to? And sometimes we see it in meditation. We see the self very strongly in meditation and what appears to be the self. And the way that we see the self very strongly in meditation is in its relationship to experience. Now the only way that the eye can survive meditation is by making an object of it. That's the only way that the sense of self can survive meditation is by making an object of it the object becomes the experience that we judge as being good or bad. Even the experience of no-self is an experience that is judged. We say, I have good experiences, I have bad experiences, but all the time we are busy evaluating ourselves on the basis of our experience. Through making an object of meditation, we create a center of substantiality. We are able to say, I have, I am, I see, and I know. Now, freedom is not the cessation of self. Freedom is not even understanding no self. Freedom is actually the cessation of ignorance. You know, there's nothing in Buddha's teaching that talks about getting rid of the self. You know, this is this is a new this is a new menu. You know? There's nothing Buddhist teaching talks about getting rid of the self. What Buddhist teacher talks about, enlightenment and awakening is the cessation of ignorance. There's a mention in there of I, of self. This is something else we have added to the agenda. What is ignorance? Ignorance is believing duality to be reality to be separated from what is true that is ignorance (coughs) ignorance sometimes manifests in the obsession with appearance and performance with name and form no one is to blame for ignorance there's no blame in ignorance it's nobody's fault you know, even to say, you know, I'm to blame for ignorance is, you know, giving the self another credential Ignorance is not anybody's fault. Ignorance is extraordinarily important to understand. Because it can let us just allow us to lay down so many burdens of judgment. You know, if you get rid of this whole fault and blame business, you lay down so many judgments. We can't be held responsible for ignorance. Believing duality and separation to the reality is like looking in a clouded mirror and mistaking that distorted image to be the truth of who we are. Now, in this path, we take steps in a way to wipe the mirror free of clouds. And we take those steps with grace and with wisdom. But we also don't want to spend our lives polishing mirrors. We cultivate calmness and serenity and spaciousness spaciousness, because all of these enable us and empower us to live in a spirit of nobility and integrity with a sense of that which is sacred in our lives. We don't take these steps of nurturing this practice so that we can look in the mirror and see reflected a perfect sense of self. We take these steps So that we can leave behind a world of struggle and leave behind a world of hunger that is really why we meditate to leave behind a world of hunger because the self is experienced as an appetite ignorance gets manifested as an appetite a hunger a wanting a reaching A desire to be filled up based on a belief of being unfulfilled. Of being somehow empty within ourselves. The steps we take in meditation is in a way learning that that appetite is not necessary. Learning to leave behind that world of hunger. Leaving behind a world of hunger, an inner world of hunger, does allow to emerge from within us be discovered within the possibilities of our own consciousness a certain grace and stillness not absence of movement but a certain grace and stillness an inner stillness of being which embraces all movement which enfolds all movement that isn't dependent on movement that's present in movement and yet is present without movement that power of a awareness that power of stillness really dissolves the world of appearances it dissolves the world of appearances it dissolves barriers it dissolves superficiality it dissolves divisions there's a kind of grace or a benediction in that stillness which can emerge remarkable understanding of what is true you know there is different ways of approaching this path in one way you know it can be compared to looking at the sky you know on a clear night and you know you can look at the sky in a clear night and you can say you know oh look at all the stars in the sky you know and another way you can look at the sky you can say well look at all the space between the stars another way you can look and say look at the sky that holds the space and the stars there is i think a, a wisdom a wisdom in knowing a grace of doing, and knowing a grace of non doing. There's a wisdom I think in really learning how to nurture, how to nourish stillness within ourselves rather than hunger. How to learn how to be present, to be receptive. Something I think if we really want to understand who we are, then what we really need to look at, or what really needs to be understood, is to see that which we cannot make an object out of. And if you can see that which you cannot make an object out of, I don't think we have a very profound understanding of awareness. May all beings be at peace with the inside, may all beings be free from struggle, may all beings live with wisdom. I have just a couple of minutes, kindly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.